Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm here in New York and joined by Jackie Gifford, Editor-in-Chief of Travel and Leisure. Known for its stunning photography of far-flung destinations, the monthly glossy has a circulation of over 900,000 and an online readership of 9 million. Starting as Senior Editor in 2013, Jackie's been at the helm since 2018. A specialist in travel and lifestyle content for almost two decades, she's written and edited for publications including Vanity Fair, OK and Brides magazine. Jackie, thank you for joining me. Thank you. This is so fun. Well, it might not be fun. These Some of these questions might be a bit dry. I don't know. We'll try and make it fun. And I apologise if in, in advance if I'm boring. And uh... Oh, you're not boring. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Now, now, you have the dream job for anyone who loves travel. I mean, how much how much time of the year do you spend actually you know, on location visiting all of these exotic locales? I actually spend a significant amount of time on the road. And you're right. Like, I, this is a dream job. And it is an absolute pleasure to be leading this brand, which is doing insanely well right now. But I'm probably on the road twice a month. And sometimes it could be little three-night trips. I was just in the Bahamas recently. And, you know, it was it was a relatively easy trip. And then I'm going also to Australia this year, which is crazy because I'm going to be gone for quite some time and away from my family. So I, I, it, that's the challenge, I think, for me is I love to travel. There are some opportunities when I can take my family with me and we travel on like real vacations, believe it or not. And then there's a lot of this job that's about business travel. And yes, you're going to glamorous locations, but you're in meetings all day. And you get maybe an hour to yourself to see a site or check out a new restaurant. And that's the tension I find that that's that's interesting. It's why I love my job. But it's there's there's definitely a struggle to achieve balance. So if you go to an exotic destination for work, Mm. do you arrive there in a slightly different mindset as if you were on holiday in a sense? Because you've still got to experience all of the various things. So the thing about being a travel editor, and I think most travel editors would would agree with me, is that you're always on. So there's – even when you're on a vacation, you're thinking – A real vacation. A a real vacation, you're thinking – as an editor would, and you're critiquing the sheets in the bed or you're looking at little details like how fast did room service arrive or what what is the layout of the hotel? Does this flow organically and would our readers like it? So that's, I find, the one of the hardest parts of this job is you're never completely off. But then the beauty of it, of course, is that you get to travel and see the world. And I feel very fortunate that I am able to do that. There are many people who can't and don't get to see as many places as I do. So again, there's there's that's sort of the tension I think is, you know, you you're you're always on when you're in the travel business and it is hard to sort of define what a real vacation is. If I had your job, I'd relentlessly abuse the privilege and the position by demanding upgrades and best room service. Oh my gosh, you're making me laugh. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I'm a disingenuous person. Yeah. I mean, how does that work in terms of are you undercover when you fly to Tahiti and stay in a hotel? Or do they know that there's someone to impress? Look, social media has changed the game completely. And I think one of the brilliant things about it is it there's this, I mean, frankly, this voyeuristic quality to it. And I'm quite real and honest in my social media posts. I post pictures of what I'm doing during the day. I don't have a photographer following me around to take pictures of, of me and what I'm doing. And certainly not when I travel. It's really just off the cuff. I post maybe out of filter, but I'm not 
overthinking it, if you want to put it that way. Um, and it's not it's a I feel like it's just it's a natural extension of who I am. So naturally, when you're traveling and you're posting, people just find out where you are. So if I'm checking into a hotel and maybe they didn't know that I was going to be there and I post about it, then sure enough, somebody's going to say, hey, somebody emails me. It's the GM or, hey, you're here. What can we do for you? And, you know, to a certain degree, that's that's just part of the job, you know, like and I don't check in under a pseudonym or anything like that. I'm not a movie star. You know, I, the, I'm totally fine with checking in as Jackie Gifford. And, you know, I'm going to be honest that probably most people have that name flagged in a hotel reservation system. I'm going to check or they into have, all hotels as Jackie like, Gifford from well, now on. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, just like with any restaurant critic, right? I know with restaurants, it's slightly different. They do change their the, – some critics have pseudonyms because when they're going to review a place, they like to stay anonymous. I don't, I'm not I'm not doing any of that. I feel like it overcomplicates things. But ultimately, look, I think I I approach travel and and where I'm going and what I'm doing in a way that's very natural and organic. I post about my family. You know, my son is young. He's four and he's a part of my life and I don't overly post about him. He's not part of my brand, shall we mm. say. He's just a part of my life. And, and so I think that's what people like about what I do on social and how they get a sense of, of you as a person. That's it. There's I mean, you no, don't want anyone who overshares anyway. No. I don't want. I don't want to overshare myself. No, God, it's boring. It is. <laughs> but you want. You want. You want just enough to to feel that you've got the essence of a person. It's it's a balance to strike, which I think you frankly have got the right balance. That's it. I think that you've hit the nail on the head. I find that it's really important in this new age, this new brave digital age, that that you stay true to yourself and your authentic self and you use social media to convey who you are, um, the good and the bad. Because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of times I feel like you, you go on Instagram and everything's amazing and happy and joyous. And we all have challenging days. And so when I have a challenging day and I feel like I need to share that with other people because they want to know that sometimes we all have challenging days and my life isn't perfect. I do that because there's a reinsurance in that. And I think, you know, it's it's not it's not all glamour. I do have this glamorous job, but it's it's not all it's not all perfect. But that's life, right? <laughs> I don't want to speak for yourself. My life's absolutely perfect. Exactly. <laughs> according to my Instagram, baby. <laughs> according exactly. According to your Instagram, it is all perfect. So how do you decide where to go? I mean, do sure. you do you have the, the luxury of sort of being bombarded with the PR teams of every single luxurious yes. hotel in the yes. world saying, Do you want, I do. And do you think, well, I've already been to Tahiti, so I don't need to go there? Or or, or do and do you revisit places with a different angle? I mean, it's a huge world out there. Absolutely. I I say to people, and I wrote this in an editor's letter recently, my list of where I want to go, it just gets longer. It never gets shorter. And that's just the way it's going to be. And again, for anybody in the travel business, real travelers, you're just you're just adding and adding and adding. And I think, how do I determine where I'm going to go? Well, some of it's just the basics of, of business. I know there are certain conferences throughout the year that I have to go to. Sometimes my husband and I look at each other and it's a long weekend and we say, okay, we're just like any other family. What's the most affordable flight? Where can we get to relatively quickly? We have a four-year-old and we're not going to take a huge amount of time off of work. And it could be a basic 
trip like that. And we might go to Charleston, South Carolina, because it's, you know, under under two hours on a plane and we have friends there and that's all good. And then sometimes we say, okay, we've got a window of time. We can take a longer trip. We recently traveled to India and we were there for almost two weeks, not quite two weeks. And it was just an absolutely amazing, magical experience. Mm. And a lot of people question, like, why are you going with such a young child? It's a really long trip. I've been to India multiple times. I think it's a beautiful country. The people are lovely. It was absolutely the right trip to take at that moment. Because... Don't drive there. It's absolute oh, yeah. insanity. <laughs> no, no renting of cars. No renting of cars. Worse than Six Flags, I think. Yeah. If you... No renting of cars. What I think was really great about that trip was, you know, we looked at each other and we both felt that in that moment we were ready for something different. We wanted to push ourselves and we were ready because we had the time to take our son. And so we did. So it's about that. It's I mean, it's really just about editing your life, managing schedules, mm. um, looking at the calendar, saying, what do we feel like at this moment? And and then going from there. And I do feel fortunate that everybody is like, hey, do you want to come stay with us? That's That's just hospitality. If you're in the travel business, people are warm and welcoming and they want to show you what they have to offer. And luckily, many people are like, Jackie, can you come stay with me? Can you come see our destination? Sometimes we like to go back to to favorite places, but oftentimes I find myself gravitating towards seeing something new at this at this moment in my life. Because you've actually sort of preempted my next question, which is, have you ever visited anywhere professionally that you then returned to as a civilian? And and similarly, when you went to India, although you went there as a civilian, do you end up writing some kind of article about it? Because as you mentioned earlier, you can't really switch off. You're still the editor. Of- You're still the editor. India is actually a prime example. So I had been on a business trip. I had actually been many years, many, many years ago. I used to travel to India oftentimes as a child with my family, with my parents. And it had been 20 years since I had last visited. I went on a business trip and had such an amazing time that I said, my family needs to go. So we then went on a personal trip and I've written about it. I posted about it. Uh, You know, there's been um, a lot of people had questions. So they wanted to know what India was like for both for both trips, I should say, when I was there in business, I got a lot of people asking, like, what was this hotel like? And what's the food like? And what's the weather like? And when I went back, it was a similar experience. So I always plan to write something eventually about any trip that I take. And that could be an article on our site. It could be in my editor's letter. It could be just on Instagram. It's the way that new media works these days is it could be on a variety of channels and platforms. It's not just a static page in the magazine. So where's the best places in the world? I mean, I'm, I'm from Yorkshire, which is the, the north of England, and I think the Yorkshire Dales are one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it's partly biased, but it, it, I genuinely believe that. Alaska, I, I love. The Scottish Highlands, where my wife's from. I, I can think of five or six things immediately that spring to mind where I think they blew me away. What's, what's top of your list of the things that you've seen? Oh, my gosh. It's funny. I get this question often and I don't really know how to answer it properly because there's so, the you know, well, I think it's fun. And we have a story on Yorkshire coming up. Wow. So, which I'm is, available as a consultant. You... <laughs> Reasonable rates. I think there are certain places that have long appealed to me for a variety of reasons that I will put above the bulk of destinations. But I want to keep in mind that I am the type person that will literally go anywhere. And I think that that's what our brand is about. You never want to close the door on a place or a culture. 
if you, you know, told me tomorrow I need you to go to name a very far-flung country or someplace that might be unexpected. Oh, for example, Bolivia. They've just opened a, a really cool glamping-style property um, in the Salt Flats. I, if you said to me, can you go check that out tomorrow? I would. I never like to close a door and, and think that a place is off-limits. A few destinations do come to mind that I love Particularly, one is Japan. That's where I was born. And I have a real reverence and appreciation for Japanese culture. I've been to Japan a couple of times. Absolutely loved it. There's no doubt in my mind that right now Japan is also having a a moment where, well, the increase in actual visitors has Mm. been tremendous, particularly from the United States. The Olympics, people are really interested in Japanese culture. I love the food. I love the the shopping. There's hardly any crime. It it struck me as an odd mix of sort of 1950s Britain coupled with ultra high-tech space age technology. It's a very... There are very few places in the world where you can go now and feel just so shocked and and surprised by how different your own you know because of globalization yeah. there's this all there's there's been a blurring of the lines in culture across you know truly across the globe and i do still feel that when you go to japan there's a sense of feeling like oh my gosh i've never seen anything quite like this yeah. and even having lived there twice because i was born there and then moved back as a some in middle school i think that many people have that same reaction and that's why they really they really love it because everything really does feel fresh and new so i put Japan at the top of the list. I would also put India at the top of the list. And it's been reaffirmed to me on these two recent trips that the absolute sheer depth and breadth of the artistry, whether it's jewelry, weaving, craft, handicrafts, woodworking, painting, it's absolutely magnificent. The food is tremendous. The people are so warm and so inviting. The diversity amongst the various states is incredible. The diversity of experiences you can have, whether it's historical tours or just a beach vacation or architecture and, again, food. I think it's it's really fascinating. I would put those two at the top of the list. But then my husband and I got married in Ireland. I'm of Irish descent. I think Ireland is absolutely spectacular in it's terms beautiful. of the, the... It's just like Britain, but with fewer miserable people, in my view. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, you know, there's nothing quite like Ireland in terms of... The music, the, the food. Totally. The landscape. That's it. That's Amazing. it. And it's so easy to get to from the United States. And, and and even so easy to get to from my house that I almost take it for granted. Totally. My wife and I try to go to Ireland at least once a year, Dublin. We, we drove around the entire coastline of Ireland, actually, a couple of years ago, which was an incredible experience. In I, it's it's Ireland just sort of ticks all the boxes for me of a classic call it a crowd pleasing vacation if you will but there's there's a lot to, there's a lot that the country has to offer and I I it, it it has always resonated with me which is why I got married there so those are three that sort of come to mind I would say as as personal favorites I mean you mentioned that you were born in Japan but you've also lived in Saudi Arabia and Qatar did you did you catch the travel bug early as a result of this um, this experience of different cultures at a young age I did so my mother and father were avid travelers my father worked abroad and he lived in France. That's where he went, met my mother actually in Paris in the 60s, which is kind of cool and exciting. And they they traveled the world. My mom was eight months pregnant with me when they moved to Japan. And so they moved, like packed up 
left the United States. They didn't know anybody there other than my father's colleagues. So, you know, when you think back on it, and I've written about this, it's actually kind of incredible what they did. You know, she moved to a place, didn't know anybody, didn't even know where she was going to give birth to me. And they just adapted and fell in love with Japanese culture. That's where I was born. We then moved to Saudi Arabia. And that time actually in Saudi uh, was less restrictive than it is now. And now, as you know, Saudi is is is... I'm hopeful that it is moving towards a less restrictive culture for women in particular. But back then, you know, my mother didn't need to – she needed to dress modestly, but she didn't need to wear an abaya. Um, And she actually quite liked living in Saudi Arabia. We loved loved our life there. We loved the people. And then we moved back to the United States, and then we moved back to Japan, and then we moved to Qatar where I went to high school. And Doha at the time when I was living there was still quite small in terms of the population, and now it's this cosmopolitan – capital with beautiful museums like the Museum of Islamic Arts, which was kind of a a real moment for that city in terms of, um, wow, we've arrived. Look at all all this amazing art. We brought in a star architect to come in and design it. It's just a different place altogether. So I moved back to the States for college. And I think all along the way, what's been really interesting about that story and traveling a lot as a child is that it got it got me used to meeting new people, accepting other cultures, understanding that there are um, numerous, you know, religions in this world. People don't all look the same. They don't all they speak the same language, but there's beauty in that. And how do you transfer that spirit of adventure into actually writing for a travel magazine? Because obviously the photography is very important, yeah. but you've also got to be able to capture the essence and the spirit of a place in words. Yeah. That must be a technical challenge, frankly. I think it is. I think there's always been that. Cha- I mean, that's the fundamentally the the challenge of travel writing and good travel writing. You know, you drop somebody into a new place and they're going to see things from their own bringing their own personal story to the table. And sometimes I think that 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 really helps. We added a piece, I I can't remember when, but it it was actually really interesting because the writer had recently lost her husband and she took a trip actually to India of all places and she didn't have a great time on the trip. She learned a lot from the trip and the piece was quite beautiful, but the trip was challenging for her, mainly also because she had just lost her husband and so she was going through a lot of emotional um, times. And I actually got a lot of response from that story because people felt like, oh my gosh, I could relate to this woman. The trip was, she wrote about what they did and it was interesting, but they felt like, oh wow, I've been, I've been in a moment like that. I've had an experience like that. I also think the challenge right now with travel writing is people are very focused on and and because that's what readers want and real travelers are doing they're really focused on getting to the heart of the matter and understanding the local community and there's a very overused word which is authenticity you know how do you convey the most authentic experience possible through writing and knowing that the writer again is always going to bring their own perspective to the table. So really our job as editors is trying to find the best possible solution, which is bringing the writer that we think has the best perspective, will do the best job for that particular story. And that really is fundamentally the job of of travel and leisure. And what I think we do successfully is that is that very thing is we say, okay, this writer, this place, we think something good is going to come out of it. What was the biggest challenge when the editorship of Travel and Leisure came up? Well, there were a couple challenges. The, the first challenge, I think, was 
the media landscape had rapidly shifted and changed. We had just our our brand had just been purchased by a new publishing house, um, Meredith Corporation, and things have actually really thrived and flourished under Meredith. But we were still trying to iron out the differences of the two companies, the logistics, um, understanding what this new corporate culture was like. And so for for a team, you've got to make sure that all the messaging is right and really get them to um, to understand that new corporate culture. So I kind of stepped in as the previous editor left right at that moment. And it was both learning a new job, but learning a new company. So for me personally, that was challenging. You know, I had to say what the most difficult, but also the most rewarding part of my job is actually managing people and a team and understanding everybody's strengths and what how they want to grow personally because that's really why I'm there. I'm I'm there to lead the content. I mean, I always say this, the 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 content to me is in some ways the easy part because I I trust my team. I know I know their strengths. I know the business. We will always produce great content. That I have faith in. It's understanding a team and what their needs are and making sure that they're learning and growing and hopefully moving into new jobs, new careers, whether at Travel and Leisure or somewhere else. That's that's actually, for me, the hardest part, but also the most rewarding part of my job. And the magazine has an affluent older audience. How do you reach kind of younger, Instagram-friendly travellers? Sure. So the best way to answer that is that we are now not just a magazine. So we are a brand that is has a robust Instagram following. And many of those people that you're referencing do follow us on Instagram. My 75-year-old mother also follows us on Instagram too. So it's, that's My the, you know, me on Instagram as well. it's I not, can't block her, it offend her. Exactly. It's not just a, it's not just, you know, Instagram, I think is, is one of those places that attracts all ages. And sure, I would say, you know, it's some of the, the basics of it. Yeah. It's geared towards millennials and younger and younger um, consumers, but, uh, but we reach all ages. And I think the overall digital, the digital footprint and outlook of travel and leisure has really been a little bit more um, encompassing in terms of the the scope of um, price points, the destinations we want to cover. Although our audience for the print product is affluent, I will say that if, if you actually spend time looking at the magazine and the prices of the places we're covering, it's not all a thousand dollar a night suites. I would say far from it. We really do a rigorous job of making sure that there's a price point for everybody. And yeah, we can cover that a thousand dollar a night suite at Rosewood Little Dicks Bay in the British Virgin Islands, which I just visited. But then we will also cover a really stylish hotel in Spain that might be $200 a night, $250 a night. We edited a story on uh, Galicia and every hotel in that piece was was affordable under $250. And they were amazing. We photographed them. They're beautiful. So I don't want to say that although the, the audience is affluent, they don't they they know value, and so we're really careful about putting in expensive things that actually are worth the price. Is Instagram ruining travel? You know, people just want to show off they've seen a place rather than actually experience it. I have to admit, this isn't a confessional podcast, but I have to admit that I sometimes do that when I'm travelling to a place. I think, oh, I'm going to get some good photos for the gram. I think that is a very good question, and it is a question that I... It's like an existential Here, question of society, isn't it? It is a it is 
applicable to travel, but applicable to other to life to life. So I think it's a brilliant question, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that um, people are oftentimes so consumed with sharing something or sharing an image and projecting an image to the world of them doing something that they're not actually really doing anything. And what I mean by that is this. If you are going to India, for example, and you want to see the Taj Mahal, are you just there to take a photo of yourself in front of the Taj Mahal or do you want to learn about the Taj Mahal? If you didn't have your phone, would you still go to the Taj Mahal? And what, what a profound question. That's it. If you didn't if you couldn't photograph the Taj Mahal, would you still go? I I would, but I I also part of my enjoyment of going to the Taj Mahal was that I was going to take a photo of myself at it. And the fact that I knew I would meant that it was just a given in my mind and then I could enjoy it. But there was it was non-negotiable that I wouldn't take a picture. And I'm always slightly annoyed if it's overcast or, uh, for example. Right. Or, you know, the Taj Mahal often has, um, you know, they're, they're restoring it. So and when you're in- there and there's like construction and then you're like, oh, well, I missed the perfect shot. That really, to me, is the fundamental question. And I I would say this, if I could go to the Taj Mahal and... If it was just in my mind, I would be okay with that. I don't mm. I don't need to tell people that I was there. I'm telling people now. But I believe that ultimately... So I'm midway. I mean, that's the healthy... I'm midway yeah. between the two extremes. I yeah. want the picture and to experience it, but other people don't. I'll give you an example. I was in Las Vegas recently on a holiday. I drove from the, through the Mojave Desert from LA in a lovely Maserati, which I hired. Again, took several pictures of it. So it was only a hire Of camp. course. Um, but I, someone said, oh, you've got to get your picture taken in front of the Las Vegas sign. I've been to Vegas many times, but I'd never had my picture taken. I thought, well, if that's a thing, I'll do it. Mm. I went to the sign. There was a two-hour line, or a queue as we would call it. Yeah, there was a snaking queue for people queuing for two hours to just get their picture taken in front of it. And I thought, I'm not Is that that." worth it? Well, they're literally not in Vegas enjoying Vegas. They're just stood in a line to get a picture. That's it. It was so odd. And the other thing that interests me now as well is a lot of these sort of roller coasters and experiences, as you're queuing to go on them, they have a green screen photography bit where someone will take a picture of you. It's obviously for the tourists, but then they'll superimpose you on a green screen of the very thing you're at. I just think that's it's so very weird. I, I mean, are you traveling? This is the question, too. Are you traveling for you or are you traveling to tell people that you traveled? 90% me. Yeah. I'm being honest, 10% so that it's for the ground. Yeah. I. That's I, not healthy, is it? No, it's not healthy. I struggle with it, too. And a lifetime of doing this and covering it and traveling also for, for you know, as a child and really learning and and also trying to impart these things to my son, I think we have to be very cautious. I think we have to really think about why we're choosing to go to certain places. And if you're just doing it to get a photo, I don't think that's the right reason. I really don't. I think you are missing the point. I think... I think if you are if one or one, I'm not. I don't need to sink you out. But <laughs> yeah. if one is if one is going to India just to take one photo, then you've got a, then you're missing you're missing the entire mm-hmm. point of the experience. And I think that people who have a real love of travel and are traveling for the right reasons would say that ultimately, if they had to go to a place and not take one photo, they would be fine with that. I just had a I just read a piece that we were reporting on and. The photographer that actually shot the story said there was this one moment on the trip where 
he had to put down his camera because it was a night it was nighttime and the photo the photos wouldn't work and that was actually one of the most liberating parts of the trip and this is a professional photographer because he was able to just sit and absorb you know there's a the amount of information we're bombarded with constantly now whether it's you know or usually probably for most people from their phone i think there is a liberation in sort of just looking up and being like okay where am i what am i doing mm-hmm. what am i seeing uh, am I actually listening to people? Am I actually having a constructive conversation? There's a lot of there's a lot of value in that. We're forgetting we're forgetting how to interact with the world, not always through a screen. I mean, how does a long-established print brand like yours thrive in an age where people are actually sharing holiday experiences digitally? Like, is do I need to buy Travel and Leisure magazine if I can look at that location in Instagram or TripAdvisor and see lots of people's kind of amateur photography? Is there a right. role for that curation? I think what we do best and why people, why our readership has stayed with us all these years is we really, it's about the curation and the mix of content and we surprise people. So, you know, when you pick up, when you pick up the issue and you see the beautiful photography and you read the beautiful stories, you just don't know what you're going to get, right? So you're looking to be inspired. You're looking to be inspired. And, and I think that the kinds of images we also put in print, they might not necessarily be Instagram images, if you will. You know, there's a certain look that performs well on Instagram. And, you know, I we've seen them all, the person in the background, hand hand sticking out, like walk come walk with me. That's not something we would traditionally put in the magazine. And and sure, and then there's some images that would, I'm sure, perform beautifully on Instagram. But I think when you're reading the when you're reading travel and leisure overall, you know, there's a there's a definitive beginning, middle, and end to the book. It's like reading a book. And there's a reason why people are still reading books books because they want one cohesive story. And I would say, although I love Instagram, I love it for what it is. It's a search tool. It's not a cohesive story. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Are your photographers threatened in terms of their their trade almost because of the iPhone because uh, in, in one sense you know I've got a, the latest iPhone the, the, the camera in one sense is so good yeah. that I feel I don't necessarily need to hire a professional photographer but of, of course I do really because just because I've got a really good lens it's still a lens on a phone and I also don't know how to compose the image in the frame as well as a as, as a proper professional photographer right. would. That's another good question. I think the most successful photographers, the ones that we champion and you know, they have they have established businesses and brands on their own and they're they're working with a variety of companies. Some of them are primarily editorial, some of them are commercial, and there's enough photography work to go around that I don't think any of them would say, Yeah, having somebody take a picture with a smartphone is going to damage or or potentially um, hinder me getting another job. I think when you're at a certain level, you're going to get work. I do think what's interesting is that for the f- for photographers, you know, the the smartphone has also enabled them to to think differently just about how they work. Um, you know, sort of the traditional photographer, um, they they're able to. Even when I think about it, you know, we when we're shooting on film, they can they can easily just take a picture on their phone, text it to us, and be like, "Hey, what do you think of this shot? Can you imagine that?" Mm-hmm. You know, rather than pausing and, and like, and then they go forward and do the and do the the full shoot. But I don't think there's a concern about that. I do think it's interesting that photography has really been – there's this like democratization right now of photography. 
I think it's inspired a new generation to think more creatively, for sure, and think of photography as a field that to as a field of business, as a trade. That's that's actually quite interesting and cool. You've talked about multi-generational family travel being increasingly important to cover. I mean, does that mean that I have to go with my grandparents, parents, in-laws, next-door neighbours? I'm going on holidays to get away from those people. Well, Obviously, if they're listening, I love them all very much. Yes. Um, sorry, Mom. So the the really the 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 trend of multi generational travel is something that has been happening for several years. And I someone someone recently pointed out to me, and they were right. It it's it came out of nine eleven, and what happened after nine eleven was people you know it was a it was a trauma. People realized that they wanted if they were going to travel and they wanted they wanted to be with their loved ones, they started prioritizing that. And that's something that slowly but surely since then has kept building and building and building. Uh, And right now we've hit a moment where hotels are having to build more interconnecting rooms and suites. That's cruise ships have to do the same. When you look at what Airbnb and, and how that company has grown, I do think a huge part of that is because of the fact that people want larger accommodations and homes. I did this when I went to New Orleans with a group of friends. We rented a house through Airbnb because we all wanted to be together and we felt like a hotel wasn't the right fit. So you've seen this whole sort of group travel movement go forth. And I do think people are feeling like they're entitled to take celebratory birthdays, anniversary trips, baby moons, honeymoons have always been a thing. But, you know, these sort of milestone moment trips in a way that they didn't probably 20 years ago. And, you know, the baby boomer generation is aging, but they are also expected to live longer than many than their their previous generation and so their parents and grandparents. And so what's happening is as boomers age and their grandparents, sometimes great-grandparents, they're seeing this in the aff- – I would say in the affluent set, they're seeing these big group trips, which they oftentimes fund, as an investment in their descendants. I've seen a generational shift as well with like when I when I was growing up society wanted to, me to to get a mortgage and sort of camp down yeah. and dig into where I was born and travel was an occasional luxury whereas now particularly with the young people yeah. employing my business they actually see a mortgage as something that would tie them down totally and, and, and actually they would rather spend the money on having as little assets as possible but more experiences yeah. so, and, I, and I wonder whether that's that's something you've observed that's absolutely something I've so I'm 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 not a millennial what am I, Gen X, I guess? So I'm kind of in I that. Am. I don't know what I, I mean, am. You're handsome. I know. That, that's all I need to know. You know, when you're born with my good looks, <laughs> I'm sorry. fortune flows. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're just, we just are. But but I guess, so I'm on the cusp of, my husband is definitively Gen X and he's a year older than me, a year and a half older than me. But I'm kind of, I really identify what is Gen more. X? Do you know, I always so nod Gen when people X mention that like, because I've, it's got come too late for me to admit I don't know what it is. You've got to, I think it's, you've you're born before, 1980. It's like basically 80 down to 1965 or well, so, or 60. So Are we supposed to be miserable? What's the problem? What, so the problem is with us is that we were sort of forgotten about in in a lot of the in a lot of the. Because we're, we're not the boomers, of, we're, nor we're millennials. No, exactly. We're not millennials, but we're a little. We still sort of are in the mindset, and I am. I'm as you talk about a mortgage. We, you know, my husband and I were always 
like, let's buy a place. And we saved and saved and saved, lived in a tiny apartment so we could eventually have a home. And so that was always ingrained in our minds. Whereas I think even people three years younger than me, that's just not even on the table. They're there to your point, like, why do I want to be tied down with something mm. like that? Makes them less agile. Like makes them less agile. They'd rather spend the money on a trip. My husband and I both felt like that was a goal that we had to achieve. And and there are other cultures that don't do that. I mean, for example, in Germany, uh, renting is is, totally. is is the de rigueur. It's normal there. It's weird to, to yeah. own the place and see your dwelling as the asset that you want to appreciate and value. Because they would say, my German friends would say, well, all you're doing though is rolling over those gains into the, another purchase of, an, of a more expensive another property. House. You're never actually accumulating real totally. wealth. Yeah, that's right. I think that's it's a uniquely American mindset. I think that uh, particularly when it comes to owning a home, it's, I mean, and this is, you know, it's, um, I could go on and on about why that happened. But I think the larger, the larger, the large, looking bigger, larger picture here, what, what I'm seeing is that travel and the, the spend in travel has, has grown because people see that stuff is ephemeral. There's a reason, you know, Marie Kondo is so popular right now is people are looking around and be like, I've got all this stuff. The, 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 sorry, I shouldn't say stuff is ephemeral. The, the, the sort of um, jolt you get when buying something new, that's ephemeral. It mm. lasts like, you're like, whoo, I've got a new shirt and that I bought at H&M. And then 20 minutes later after you wear it, that's gone. You don't care anymore. Mm. And I think people are wisening up to that. And so they see more value in in a trip where the memories and sort of the the, the pleasures are can be remembered uh, for years and years and years rather than your $20 shirt at H&M. Let me ask you the, the controversial question, which I suppose is contained with the, the phrase, are you evil? Are you encouraging evil insofar as, and let me make the case, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you're encouraging tourism at a time when local people complain that they're being swamped by visitors uh-huh. in places like the Maldives and so on. And also you're encouraging people to fly on mm-hmm. uh, big metal birds that are damaging the yep. environment. Aren't we selfishly prior? And by the way, I don't agree with the premise of this question. I'm just doing the journalism yeah, thing. Sure. Well, I suppose I do a little bit because I do feel a little bit guilty. You know, we're flying in big, big metal planes to places yeah. are we prioritizing sort of selfish experiential stuff over mm. over something maybe we should buy local but also be tourist yeah. local yeah so that's a that's another great question i undermined it by saying i didn't agree with it well, halfway through but it was a quite a monologue as well, well so we feel and i've written about this a few times look the two okay so i would i'll answer it two two ways i think we are now it's 2020 i think we are definitely the the culture the conversation has shifted and people are really concerned about the the environment i mean this is like this is this is it we climate change is is happening mm-hmm. we're seeing it look at what happened to australia um look at uh you know the recent fires in in california as well and and what 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 ultimately People are saying to themselves, they're saying this, okay, how can I be a better traveler? And what that means is if I'm going to decide to mm, take a trip, how can I engage with the local community in a positive way? Mm. How can I I mean, because tourism boosts the economy, of Absolutely. course. A lot of economies I mean, that's rely it. on it. That's it. So, so we shouldn't discount 
tourism in that it it, it contributes to to economic growth. Um, well, many places would would die if but for the tourism. Absolutely, revenue. I mean we've been working closely with with Tourism Australia to which was our destination of the year. Australia was our destination of the year to think about the fact that you know people were canceling their trips there because of the bushfires and realistically people could lose their jobs. And 660,000 people are in the tourism industry in Australia, and that could have a terrible effect on their economy. And so so big picture, two things. I think that people will start to – I think you're right. People might say to themselves, do I need to take 10 trips a year? Maybe not. Maybe it's three, but maybe those trips are more meaningful. I'm reducing my carbon footprint, and I'm really deciding – that those three trips are a more worthy investment. Why? Because I'm going to meet people on the ground, have a direct impact on the community, and and feel more engaged than I was before. So you've got that. So maybe that that could that could be a trend. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but it could be something that goes forward. And then I think the second part of it is that people are going to be committed to supporting brands that have taken a stand about the environment and what their footprint is and and showed real growth positive movement towards reducing their footprint how did you get into this lark you know did you always want to be a, a journalist or did you always want to be a travel journalist what was it how did what was your career journey how did it start I never said to myself I want to be a journalist sorry <laughs> uh, I always said I was I'm just I and I'll still say this I'm a reader. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I read voraciously. I read books, newspapers, magazines, Apple News. What ha- I read everything. I literally read everything, and I and I started to read at a really young age. So that's just me. So when I studied, and I loved, you know, I was also really passionate about math and science and biology. So I loved, I, I really loved school. And when I got to college, I decided that I was going to be an English major and I specialized in medieval studies at Princeton. So that ultimately does not seem like the natural fit towards travel journalism. But I just, again, I love to read. Um, I wrote my thesis on Chaucer and I just was constantly absorbing information. And a close professor there recommended me for a job in New York at Condé Nast. And that's how I fell into magazines. And would I have predicted that, you know, nearly 20 years later, I would be still in that field? No. I think it just sort of evolved and happened that way. And then I happened to fall into travel, which was great because it was something I knew. What's top of your to-do list at the moment then? Other Ooh, than sort of get the milk and things like that. It sounds so boring. I need to get a haircut. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, meant, I didn't I mean the domestic, darling. I meant sort so, of, what's, what's, what's the thing that you're thinking about in the shower, like yeah, work-wise? Yeah. What is the thing I think, I'm thinking about? I think it's really how we can continue to shape the storytelling of the every every piece of content that we produce at Travel and Leisure has to have value. And I think given that we're in a new decade and we're looking and thinking big picture about serious questions like over-tourism, climate change, um, natural disasters related to climate change, giving back, feeling like we're responsible travelers, it's just about refining that and tell, and getting that messaging and that those stories right is supremely important to me. Um, and then the other thing is just making sure my team is happy. That's what I always I always worry about that. So there's always someone who, you know, they've got something going on and you just want to make sure that they feel value in their work. What type of leader are you then in, in your organization, mm. in, in the magazine, in the newsroom? What are you? Um... 
How do you lead? I would say you could ask any of my team, and I think that the 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 thing that they would probably say is that I'm an empathetic leader. I think that empathy is an underappreciated quality in management and leadership. I believe that I don't know everything, I, and if I said that I did, I'd be lying. And I think people would they would realize that I was lying, and then they would they would they would also start to be like that it creates a culture of fear that that people then don't they don't have any value to bring to the table because Jackie knows everything so why why even bother so i'm honest about the fact that you're here to tell me information my job is to manage you and manage this brand and there are some things i might know that you might not know but there are also some things that you'll know that i won't know and so i think the ultimate empathy is an underappreciated quality because you also have to give people the benefit of the doubt and sort of listen to their personal challenges and needs and that gets harder as teams get bigger but i also believe that mm, that's ultimately why i'm there what's next for you Next, in terms of trips, I've got a lot of stuff in the works, Um, Europe, Australia, stuff in the States. I think the next challenge, the next thing for me is to just constantly um, make sure that I put down my phone and spend time with my family. That's really important to me. I have a really beautiful son and a lovely husband who I've known for um, many, many, many years. We went to college together and uh, he's busy. I'm busy. And at the end of the day, if you're not talking, um, I often find that, you know, you this is not this is not a unique problem. You know, you end up sitting on the couch at night looking at your phone. TV's on. You're both sitting there and not not interacting and it's like is that really what what marriage is about that's the dream that's the dream right (laughs) i'm like why don't we just go out to dinner so you know that i like both that's it Uh, you know i'll have a lovely dinner with my wife and then i want to sit in my underpants and watch tv so that's 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 my that's my focus it's always my focus and you know it's something simple like that it makes it it makes my heart feel full and it makes me a better person. Do you have any kind of travel hacks then of stuff oh, that you sure. picked up along the way? Because I have I have certain things that I've learned over the years that I then share publicly because then if everyone knows, yeah. then then I'll lose my advantage, I'll lose my edge. I do prefer always bringing a carry-on. I don't like checking luggage. That's oh, for a couple either. of reasons. Uh, it, mainly because I like to just get out of the airport and go right away. I'll I've check all... on a big holiday, but totally. other, other than that, I mean, I travel to make every week. I would never check a bag. Yeah. India, we checked our bags. Uh, it was a long trip. We had a lot of clothes to bring, but I feel like typically I like to carry in a bag and it's also, it's it served me well in a couple instances where my flights have been canceled and I've had to just get out and leave an airport and go yeah. right to a hotel rather than wait to sort of get your bag. You can just go. So that's one thing. Um, I like to travel with a fairly prescribed wardrobe where I know what I'm wearing if it's a business trip for each day. And then I usually try to keep it in a fairly, like a, there's like a look, there's a color scheme and then I accessorize with jewelry or things that I bring. Um, that That's kind of a an easy packing strategy. I don't, I really say to myself, am I, I'm brutal. Am I going to wear this on this trip? If not, like I, it stays at home because it just weighs you down. I, I've learned that over the years is that you, you pack optimistically assuming you'll yeah. need 11 
tops and, and you, you only don't. wear three. Wear and, three. and now I, I'm very, very brutal. I ask that question all the time. I think I will put a spare pair of jeans in there, yeah. but just in case I spill something on these. Well, that's that's that leads me to my next point. Spillage. Um, as a mother, I find that on a plane, you know, and as my son gets older, it's gotten easier. But certainly when he, he still spills stuff on me. But when he was a baby, I, it was constant spills, stains. So I would always pack a spare outfit for me and him in a carry-on. Like I would put it in specifically um, like an easy to access carry-on bag. You've got your like your bigger suitcase, but then I would have a duffel that was under the seat in case I needed to quick change my shirt. Um, so that's that's another tip. Um, I think too, you know, I like to make sure that there's a that we're not as a family when we travel, we're not over scheduling ourselves. And what I mean by that is ultimately you need to build in downtime for everybody to decompress and do what they need to do and not feel like you're rushing, rushing, rushing. It usually leads to meltdowns for both children and adults. So whether that's a morning um, where everybody can sleep in or, um, and that's what we did in India and it worked really well. I also think that when I'm traveling now, for business it's different. For a vacation, there are moments when I deliberately try to put down my phone and that's usually at mealtimes. Like I just, you know, there's no real reason to have it there other than um, my friend know. has a phone cage where That's everyone around idea. the table is like a plastic faux prison and people yeah. put there and there's a lock I mean people could smash it of course but it's just a, totally. s- a symbolic thing have you ever done the thing where you meet friends where everyone has to put their phone in the middle of the table face down and whoever checks their phone first has to get the check for the whole table I have not done that yeah I've done that a couple I, of times I, I lost one it cost me about a couple of hundred dollars but that's a good idea it I works think really I'll well I'll try that actually because <laughs> I you know, I, I, again, I think being present is really important. It's something I'm trying to focus on um, for the future. But but those are kind of ba- – I would say those are my, my overall tips and, and not to, like, overthink it. Like, a lot of people get caught up in the minutia, like, is this the right restaurant? It's like – I mean, if it's not, I, if it's not good, leave, go somewhere else. I, you know, a lot of people get so because they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm here. I've got to do everything. Has to be perfect. Mm. It's not going to be perfect. No. Travel is not perfect. You might Actually, not the imperfections have, are what adds to the it. joy. Sometimes that's it. And so, you know, you just can't. Like we were, we were in Switzerland for one night in Zurich. Last summer, and it was because we were connecting and going home from a, a trip to Italy, and we were there during Zurich Fest. It happens once every three years. The entire city shuts down. It's like a big carnival. It's crazy. It was raining, and I said to my husband, "Let's like we. I still want to see Zurich Fest." He's like, "What? It's raining. Why are we going outside?" I'm like, Zurich's "Let's go." Stunning. It's city. so beautiful. Love so it. we went outside in the rain. It ended up being fine. We laughed, and then we went back into the hotel, had a club sandwich. And then the sun came out and then we went back out and it was like the most beautiful, perfect day. And we had all sorts of challenges. Getting to the hotel was a challenge because the entire city had shut down. There was no public transportation. The poor man who picked us up at the airport was like, I've got to get around these police officers. It was a mess. Was it the most perfect, logistically perfect travel day? Absolutely not. But 
then it, the sun came out. We enjoyed a glass of wine as we walked around the city. We watched um, tightrope walkers, and there were planes that were doing, you know, like aerialist tricks. It was so cool. And then we ended up just going back to our room and watching Roger Federer play tennis on TV and ordering room service. And it was so much fun. But I think, like, we didn't go there saying, we're going to research everything that we need to know about Zurich. And we're going to make sure that this day is absolutely perfect because it just it, – it, you didn't need to do that. You don't – I think most people need to let, let a little bit of spontaneity enter their lives. You are right though, aren't you? Because you used the phrase overscheduled earlier and I, I agree with you is that there's a tendency to pack too much in. You, you know, whenever my wife and I go to a new place, I always inevitably buy those kind of top 10 best books of X Zurich. Totally. And then you end up say, well, we'll do number one then, number two then. And you end up, all, it's almost, sometimes it's almost more stressful. It's so it's like crazy. Work. No, it's work and travel shouldn't be work. I mean, there's certainly like, there's, I mean, yes, I guess like there there can be a certain amount of emotional or mental work that goes into a trip, both in the planning side and then when you're on the ground and experiencing things, you're doing work on yourself. Like really, some people feel like a trip should be transformational. I don't think every trip needs to be as such. But I also think when you're traveling and you're just in a new place, you have to just let things happen and and not worry so much about like, oh my God, we didn't get to this. We didn't get to that. I, I have to consciously tell myself this because it's it's part of my job is to see a lot. And I have to be like, actually, God willing, there will be another trip. I can do this another time. So uh, we have a lot of aspiring journalists and very ambitious young people who are just starting yeah. out listening to this, looking for sort of career tips and so on. What would you say to someone listening who is really inspired by your success that wants to be the next editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure magazine? Oh, you know, maybe wow. whenever the time is right, yeah. you, can't have, you can't be sitting on the throne for no, forever. No, that's true. So, so, you know, assuming that sort of 15 years from now you're deposed or right. you decide to do something else, what advice would you give to your would-be deposer? So I give this advice to a lot of people in a... In a I've been watching too much Game of Thrones. And you have been. Yeah, it's I one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I, I give this advice to a lot of people. A phrase that I use, particularly when I talk to some of my young female employees, is fake it till you make it. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of times people don't have the confidence. They feel like they need to know everything to get their next job, to walk into a room, and they feel like they need – if th- that's the only way that they're going to succeed. And if again, if we all knew everything, the world's problems would be solved. So I often tell young well, people – Well, I do know everything, and I ex- still haven't managed to solve the world problems. And you still haven't managed to solve so, it. Yeah, that really, enthusiasm and hard work, that's everything. It's actually 99% that's of it. That's 99% it? <laughs> of it. So if you show up with enthusiasm, it's okay if you don't know everything. Mm. Just project an air of confidence and say, okay, I I don't know that, but I'll get back to you. Mm. Or I'm going to just take this challenge. I'm going to manage it to the best of my abilities. And that's okay. I don't need to like – I don't need to to worry and overly stress about it. And when I say fake it till you make it, enthusiasm and confidence really and hard work, that's that's everything. Don't don't overthink something. Don't overanalyze. Just just be who you are and and – be as positive and um, confident and um, just take ownership of something. Jackie, it's been a hugely interesting conversation. Thank you ever so much for your time. Oh, thank you. A Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.